0: Welcome to this, our first episode in season three of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, church minister, chaplain and radio broadcaster. Recovering is a media chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. In this episode, I sat down with Barbara Drever, Pacific correspondent for One News. Barbara's career spans decades, with a significant focus on the Pacific. She has been at the forefront of covering most of the breaking stories and nations in our part of the world that Aotearoa New Zealand has strong connections to. She has confronted corruption, highlighted good news, and given a voice to the people of the Pacific.
1: This remote community anxiously waits, hoping its red flag will attract medical help for its seriously ill infants. A medical team making a sweep of the Solosolo area is alerted. They're quick to respond and there's immediate concern over the state of the children.
0: For this conversation, Barbara chose to talk primarily about reporting on the 2019 measles outbreak in Samoa. Covering the outbreak had a significant impact on her. She was faced with death sadly, the death of children, and in the midst of it, got up close and personal with families who were being hit hard by the outbreak. Barbara, it's a pleasure to have you in this little studio in Industrial Penrose. You did well to find it, considering this is not an area where you imagine media to be. So, I'm,
1: uh, I'm a gun with directions, so, so <laughs> give me a Google Maps and I'm there.
0: <laughs> now, I've been looking forward to this conversation, partly because I, I greatly respect your work. And I think the area that you work in is extremely significant in terms of helping New Zealand, Aotearoa New Zealand, understand itself as a Pacific nation. That the countries you're dealing with are our brothers and sisters uh, here in the South Pacific, that they're not something uh, distant. You've been doing it for quite some time. Now, the place <laughs> I love to start with people is getting into journalism. Did you always imagine being a journalist when you were young?
1: Oh, heck no. So when I was at university, I was doing education and I finished my degree and I thought, oh, I really don't. With all you know, greatest respect to teachers. It's, I didn't want to do that. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And the, the careers counsellor said to me, oh, why don't you look at journalism? Oh, okay. So I got into the Pacific Island journalism course at Monaco Polytech, which was running at the time. And the first day the tutor walks in and started speaking to us and I it was like this light bulb moment. Wow. And I thought, oh, this is, this is it. This is what I want to do. And it was, I remember that moment. Like it was, There's a few moments in your life that you go, whoa. And that was one of them.
0: I love it. I'd Mm. call that an epiphany. Yeah, Uh, that's it. Fascinating. Fascinating (laughs) that it was that that clear, that quickly, rather than being this slow revelation that played out once you tried the course out a little bit.
1: And I'll tell you what was really funny is I didn't get into the AUT, well, it was Auckland Technology, I think, tech that was at that time. I didn't get into that course. I didn't make the cut. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I... there was a reason for that. Like, I always think there must be a reason for that and it was doing the Pacific Islands journalism course right. which actually changed my life. It literally was a pivotal point getting into that Pacific Islands journalism course. Because that's what we focused on.
0: Which then, of course, sets up the trajectory for the the next decades. So out of of the course then, where did you head off to first?
1: Um, I tried to get a job in New Zealand and I couldn't. Yes, I didn't like the fact that I'd done a Pacific Island journalism course. Really? Yep it was oh, different times Yeah.
0: And, see i've uh, heard this i've heard this far too often yeah that things that we think are intrinsic to storytelling in aotearoa now i think it's easy for people to forget that that was not it hasn't always been there and that in fact it's still in some instances a struggle to get those voices out there so you were paving the way and forging a path that didn't really exist at the time
1: well even at that time i mean we were doing mainstream stories in the course so i you know, we worked at um different newspapers. I worked at the Dom Post and the Dominion in those days it was called and was doing mainstream stories. I had front page stories of and even then, um, you know, the minute you mentioned you did the Pacific Island Journalism course, so it was a massive turn off for employers. Uh so um I went to the Cook Islands, um, and so that was my first step and uh, worked for the Daily Cook Islands News before um, getting involved with the Cook Islands Press, which was a weekly,
0: and then ended up part owner.
1: Yeah, I mean I went in there. So, to be fair, it was only um, Jason Brown who was the owner and myself who we were co-owners. I was, and I edited it, um, and it was quite the venture for us. And it was only the two of us to start. And then it just grew into more people and it was highly successful.
0: Thinking about journalism in Aotearoa New Zealand at the time versus what it was like to work in the Pacific and the Cook Islands, what would you say the major differences were in how you'd operate?
1: Um, everyone thinks working in the islands must be like, just like paradise but you're working mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we worked extremely hard and we didn't have things like Every week we'd have to borrow equipment, like borrow a car to deliver the newspapers or borrow a laser printed, you know. And I remember one time our plates, we'd order our printing plates from New Zealand and it would arrive on the Saturday afternoon and we'd print Saturday night and deliver Sunday, Sunday, early. We'd do everything, we'd fold. The thing as well wow. and the plates didn't arrive and it was just me and the printer guy <laughs> Mahai who <laughs> was there and we got we rang around no one had any plates except these paper plates that you can put on a printer so we had a little screwdriver we made little holes so it could grip onto the grips and we just prayed actually that it would work mm-hmm. and we'd be able to get enough newspapers out we'd go bust if we didn't get a newspaper out That's we lived from week to week and we got a out and uh, it was pretty incredible but yes we did everything ourselves especially in the early days and then it got easier um, as we started to uh, develop the newspaper more,
0: man, that's real grassroots oh, yeah. journalism right there. Taught
1: me how to be a good journalist too, because you have to come up with good stories. There's no one giving it to you on a plate. Like you have to come up with stories. And people, I remember waking up, and the, you know, there'd be our office was in our house, and so waking up, and in the morning there'd be a there'd be all these documents that had been slid under the door that had been leaking out from the government, and and at the time. It was very a uh, lot of corruption in the Cook Islands. And uh, finally, I remember Geoffrey Henry, who's the Prime Minister at the time. We since developed a good relationship, but at that time, he went in Parliament and it went all over the Cook Islands where he said that Cook Islands press had been, hu- we myself and Jason Brown had been hired by the CIA to bring down his government. And I remember thinking, we've made it. <laughs>
0: yeah. And if only that were true. You'd have paid better. Oh, yeah, the facilities like... might have been a bit. Oh, we you ain't know. for hire.
1: <laughs> no <laughs> no one can hire us.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's that's that's yeah. fascinating. And I would imagine there comes a point in the middle of that where it's tiring and if in my mind, that's where that epiphany comes into play. Because if this was just a career choice, yeah. you just kind of like the course, so you trying it out. When you're in the middle of that, you've got the government railing against <laughs> you. You're struggling to get the paper out each week. If that epiphany had not occurred, that's where you bow out.
1: Yeah, and we got a lot of threats, and it was pretty tough going at that time. Um, but what I would say is that I learned when you have to do everything yourself, you learn a great self-sufficiency and and how to be a good journalist and how to, and believe me, there were some real steep learning curves. We all make mistakes in life. And so, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a great grounding for me mm. at that time.
0: And learning all the parts of the organisation as opposed to stepping into a big organisation, having what this one little role <laughs> within it and not really interacting with the, the rest of it. In a space like that, you learn everything.
1: We had to learn everything, yeah. Otherwise, we sink.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the journey from there to TVNZ, because you've been at TVNZ now for quite a while.
1: Yeah. Um I came back to New Zealand and worked with the... A whole New Zealand listener, and I did a whole lot of stuff for them, and then I got a job with Radio New Zealand, and that was fantastic. I love Radio New Zealand um, at that time, and well, now as well. But at that time, it was yeah, it was something that I really aspired to do. Radio is fantastic; it's a very honest medium, um, and I was really lucky to get a job with Radio New Zealand and I was so nervous as well because, you know, I came back from the islands. I couldn't get a job to start with. and But, um, yeah, I was really f- fortunate to get a job with Radio New Zealand.
0: Mm. Doing doing what exactly? I was just Reporting doing
1: main, mainstream but I also did a lot of Pacific stories and um, at that time they went looking for a Pacific correspondent and I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, And when it became clear that that was not going to be on the cards there at that time, uh, I left and got a job with Television New Zealand as a general reporter. But it was about building skills and, you know, it's like I always think of journalism like a house and you've got to put in a solid foundation and every block that every school that you get, it's like a block. And I always think the stronger your blocks are, the stronger your house is before you can do the wallpapering and put the pretty stuff in the, you know, and you've got to make sure you've got a strong foundation. So that was important to me, going to Television New Zealand and learning how to do a whole different, it is a different ball game. Pictures is powerful and it's good for Pacific people. Mm. Pictures are great for us. Why? We're colour, like we are yes. colour. <laughs> we, we have, it gets across the joy and you you have audio as well, but you see the joy in people's faces and, and the heartbreak and we are all about the people. And I think that, so for me, television is where it's at or pictures, and it's not just tele, linear television I'm talking about now, it's also digital and online, but it's about pictures and it is so important for us.
0: Mm, I think it it helps humanise things too.
1: A hundred percent. Take
0: every part of what it means to be human. The most human thing is to sit face to face and and chat with people. Uh, You step back from that and you've got visual. You've got television. A step back from that is audio. step back from that is text. Uh, So I can see how that would work really well. bang the three
1: together and you've got magic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I just want to highlight the bit that you've just said too. For young journalists who might listen to this, Mm. that idea of building blocks, because as a young journalist, heading into one of our big organisations, you might be stuck in a spot uh, having to report stuff that appears on social media and get frustrated because you thought you were going to be speaking truth to power and change the world. But that idea that each stage is putting in place those building blocks and those foundations, I think is really important for people to remember.
1: Yeah, I think telling the truth is also really important. And this, if you're talking about social media disseminating what is true and what is not, um, you know, we we don't just... We don't say, Hey, it's raining outside when it's raining. Mm. Like, we have to look at why it's raining. <laughs> so, yeah, we it's a it's a tough gig these days. It is it really is and you have to disseminate that. And you have the power to influence and that's uh, it's it's a tough it's a tough one because you have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders and you just need to get it right. But, so yes, making sure you have those building blocks in place is really important. And what I would say to young people is there's so much there's so many untold stories. and that's key. That's what I always tell to young journalists. go and find find something you're interested in and go from there. right? You, you know, don't just specialize in make sure you specialize in something as well as doing main, you know your, your, the wider. Issues. Find something that you can specialise in and that you like.
0: Yeah, it's really good advice. Moving then into a uh, Pacific focused role at TVNZ, did that role already exist or did you? Or, yeah, it okay. did.
1: And a wonderful man who, became, who was my mentor, actually, Ewart Barnsley, was the Pacific correspondent at that time. And he. Um, He was just wonderful. He was such a good mentor and tutor for me because when you're writing for television, it's a whole new Mm. ballgame. You you know, to make it a powerful script, you have to write your pictures. Yeah, it's it's a real skill. And he was such a good teacher. And then we became a Pacific unit and that was his recommendation. He put together a proposal and so we became the Pacific Correspondents together. And you'd think that that could be really bad. (laughs) Like there could be a lot of competition. But actually, it divided up so well and he did event driven stories and I brought my own to the table and we just worked like that, we worked in tandem so beautifully and I learned a lot from him
0: mm. How was it in the beginning trying to forge that space because the Pacific is so relational uh, mm. aside from what you'd done in the Cook Islands, somewhat new kid on the block, mm-hmm. the forging of those relationships at the beginning, it's not like the stories just fall into your lap how was that journey?
1: Yeah um, It's finding your, to me, the strength of being a good Pacific correspondent is finding stories that aren't anywhere else. And for me, I have one role, one main role, and that's to give Pacific people a voice. It's not necessarily to be on Pacific people's side, but it's to make sure they have a voice. And because there are a lot of stories that, well, not a lot, but there are some stories that I do where... Um, there are some bad people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And so also highlighting um, what may be perceived as negative issues is also, you know, you can have the community come down on you too, like you're so negative or, you know, you're not helping us. And and it's like, actually, my job is to give Pacific people a voice and to make sure if we don't highlight things and issues, nothing changes. It just keeps going. Mm -hmm. And I did not become a journalist to hide information or to pretend something's not happening or sweep something under the table, we have to address the hard issues face on so that change can happen and only then can change happen. Hmm.
0: That takes courage because yeah. that can put you in harm's way and you've ended up in situations that have, mm. uh, some people would, it'd, it'd destroy them, they'd be, they'd be out. Getting arrested at gunpoint, for instance, Talk us through that.
1: Um, so there's been a couple of arrests. I mean, I've been in the George Spate camp where there was guns at us. Um, no, those from the hostage takers, and that was that was when I went for Radio New Zealand, actually. Mm. But when I was taken in, there were no guns. Um, I was taken in at Nandi International Airport, and taken to a detention centre, and that was awful. Mm. And because I was basically locked, and some of the some people had been. Um, arrested two other journalists, two other journalists, but they weren't taken to a detention centre. They were taken to sort of some, some sort of hotel place. I was taken to a detention centre. Why? Um, I don't know. Uh, that's it's just where they took me, mm. and they put me in a room and um, upstairs, and. Um, there was no, you know, the doors had a big window on them, and but bars on the windows, and you look outside, and there was a big grate that would open, and cars would come in. And during the night, I got a call from a friend, and he said, "Oh, yeah, I don't tell the story often, actually, because," but he he said to me, um, "We've been having a meeting, and we don't know whether to tell you this or not." And I was like, "Tell me what?" And he said, "These these are fellow journalists," and he said, "Oh, we've." been talking to the military and they've made some pretty big threats against you that you know you you might not be able to get back on the plane tomorrow and you deserve everything that's coming to you uh, tonight so you need to um, just we had a meeting about whether to tell you and we think you should know so I uh, got myself ready and because there'd been a bit of torture that had been happening and people being taken to the barracks and tortured Um, And I got myself mentally ready for it. And one of those things, and it's going to sound weird, but um, was practicing taking off my clothes because that was what was happening to some of the women who were being taken in too. So I spent the night doing that and mentally preparing myself for what could be horrific. And, um, yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible and nothing happened, I'm going to yeah, say, good. you know, but every time I heard the great open outside, I'd run to the window and look out to see if it was a military car coming to get me mm. and it was, yeah, it was a, f- and then the next day, even then I wasn't sure, like they came and got me in the immigration office, it was an immigration uh, detention centre, they came and got me and put me in a car and I still wasn't sure where I was being taken, and But then when we drove into that airport, I was so relieved. Yeah. Oh, I was like, oh, thank goodness. You know, yeah, it was a relief.
0: Yeah, I remember, I remember it happening. Mm. But, of course, from here, all you know is there's a diplomatic spat playing out. You've yeah. been arrested. And in our mind, you're probably going to get released at some point. They're just trying to scare you a little yeah. bit. But yeah. to hear that that's what was playing out for you. Uh, and we hear about journalists being kidnapped or arrested in various parts of the world and again it's very easy just to hear it as a diplomatic spat but to remember that there's someone else on the other side probably with some very real fears playing out and in some instances are going through those things is a good reminder
1: yeah and we'd seen precedents hmm. in Fiji it was it was definitely happening so you know there'd been some journalists had been really badly hurt and and the same with human rights people they were really badly hurt, and to this day they're damaged. So it was a very real threat and um, something I was aware of. But to be fair, um, I had my phone with me, and I it, it was in my pocket, so it hadn't been taken from me. And so I made that opportunity <laughs> that night to call everyone I knew. Um, and MFAT had tried to um, – our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade had tried to get to me and had been denied access which was a breach of the Geneva Convention but they were were wonderful they were there the next day at the airport and um, just absolutely wonderful to me Um, and the same in Nauru when I was arrested there even though the Nauru government denies I was arrested but I definitely was taken in um, and it wasn't voluntary (laughs) yeah
0: I'm wondering what as a chaplain, I'm wondering what debriefing after that looked like for you. How you got to process that?
1: You know, um, television New Zealand is really good, and they you can get counselling for that for anything that we need that our job you know impacts us on our job. Um, I didn't get counselling for that because um, I was pretty strong in my mind and strong um, about that. Uh, what I didn't like was when I came back and there had to be a story about it. And I hate yeah. me being the story. Uh, and someone actually had to help me write it because I said, I cannot write this with me as I. And I, do I have to do it? How can I do it with I in it? Um, the word I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was, I didn't like doing that. But that was probably the w- worst part. No, I was okay. Um, I was okay. There's, there's worse things um, than that so to me it was just part of the job um, I knew I was taken in because I was doing a good job mm. and because I was challenging the Baini Marama's, um regime military regime um, and you know there was some horrendous things that were going on there and I was I was privileged to be have that platform to be able to expose these things so i was i was fine with being taken and you take me in i'm not going to stop doing my job so actually it was it was okay i didn't need anything for that
0: yeah much respect Much respect. (laughs) Partly because you're right. If you do your job well, there are risks involved, and you've got to be Mm. ready for those risks. Uh, Not everybody's going to clamour at your feet, uh, offering adoration. You're going to get the exact opposite in some instances. No,
1: and that's right. When we went to Nauru, you know, we've um, told you can't interview um refugees. But when we got there the information people for the Nauru government had said to us, We know you're going to, just do it in public. So don't you know, don't go into sort of behind closed doors or high and so I was interviewing um, some refugee a family, lovely family at a restaurant, outside the restaurant when the Nauru police rolled up in two cars, ordered me into the car and took me to the police station and they did take my phone off me. And I was very lucky that there were some uh, Fijian journalists who I knew who were waiting to interview the um, the police commissioner. And I said, get our New Zealand officials onto this please, I've been taken in, they're, they're taking me in. And they put me in this dark room. So I walk into this room and it's dark, long. And I sit down And they shut the door. And you know when your eyes get adjusted to the dark? And I was like, there's a silhouette of someone. And it was a male police officer sitting at the end of the table. And it was this dark room. And he was sitting there just in quiet. So obviously it was to intimidate me. And so I just talked for a poor guy. I talked for like, (laughs) an hour. I I talked about fishing. I talked about the educator weighed up the different education systems for the different countries. And I just talked and talked and talked until, um, oh no, it was this lady, it was a police officer from Australia who was attached to the Nauru. um, And she opened the door and she said, why is this light off? And he said, it's broken. Oh. And she switches it on. <laughs> and she said, turn to me. And she said, I bet you'd prefer that on. I said, I would indeed. <laughs> and then um, the fat people arrived. And once again, they were absolutely, um, you know, really, really fabulous. Mm. And I was a little bit distressed at that point. But okay. And then, um, yeah, it was it was good to get out and, yeah
0: how, why did you stay in it? Why did you stay in it We reporting on the Pacific when when these things can because I need
1: to because those personal things aside there's such big issues and what happens in the Pacific affects us in New Zealand and what and it affects the on the world stage climate change there's there's huge issues and also she break down stereotypes and you know I do a lot of work here in New Zealand with the Pacific communities just breaking down if we can show every time I do a story and I don't do a single story without thinking in my head why do people care like what is why should people care about this and I'm thinking of mum and dad on the couch or auntie or your your teenage daughter or so. you know why would people care about this and then I do the story with that in mind because otherwise it's just another story it's it's got to have impact and power and and sometimes and I don't mean it has to be a massive big breaking story it just has to mean something and if we can do that and change people how people perceive and it might be a tiny little tiny little step at a time but if we can do that, even if it's just one person, I, I did a story last year about this wonderful Tongan man who, he was an overstayer. And you mentioned overstayers, and, you, and a lot, there's a big sector of society who go, ah, you know, they send them home. He was an overstayer, but you know, I did a story about how he was working. and He'd broken his his partner, his wife was a is a resident, and they have a child little baby. Wonderful, wonderful man. He broke his back on the job and I did this story about him and people just I showed his humanity like showed him and his wife and his child and And just, it was fantastic, like, how people responded to that. And that's why I do my job, is to change. We're all people. It doesn't matter what colour you are. (laughs) We're all people. Um, It's just that my people in New Zealand live in low socioeconomic situations. And that impacts a lot on how they live their lives. And that impacts on how everyone lives their lives. Mm. So I want to show that. I want to change things. I do want to make a difference.
0: We're going to talk in a second about your main story, which largely does impact lower socio-economic mm. uh, groupings. But first, that that term overstayer. I think it's worth pointing mm-hmm. out to New Zealanders who hold that idea in their head and they relate it to Pacific peoples is that Pacific peoples have been visiting the shores of Aotearoa New Zealand since before British settlers arrived. We just happen to have put laws around it now that that don't favour that relationship. That is always been there. So to call any Pacific person an overstayer Mm. when they're visiting another country in the South Pacific, one they've had a long relationship with, it's a little weird when you really start thinking about it. It's a little artificial. Coming to your main story, the measles outbreak. I remember that story breaking out and it was devastating. Mm. There was a lot of death. Talk us through your involvement.
1: We knew that there were children dying or starting to die in Samoa, um, but none of the media here, New Zealand, were covering it. And that the measles had been, as, as what happens when we've got aeroplanes and um, people moving from country to country, that it had come from New Zealand. And I said to my bosses, we need to go and see what's happening. So that's that's how I got there to start with. No one was really covering it, and so yeah, it was oh, it was just so super tough this one because you're dealing with huge grief. I you know there were over eighty people who died, and most of them were children. And if you imagine Thamel is quite a small place, and then you've got. All these families who are affected, um, and a lot of them hadn't been uh, vaccinated. A lot of, the, in fact, n- the children hadn't been vaccinated. That's why they were dying. And one of the issues, and it was an important issue, was that they'd changed the way that they do health checks. So in the past, it was all very traditional and the nurses would go to each village and there's some very remote communities and people don't have enough money for the bus, they don't have transport mm. a lot of the places there's not even you know, there's no cell phone coverage so they'd go to the village and they would um, inspect the children, check their hair and how many pairs of undies they've got, it was it got down to that level and sure they were all vaccinated but then they changed it and made it more central so you had to go to main health clinics to get vaccinated and that so a lot of people weren't vaccinated and then they'd had this terrible incident where two Two children had died after being given what was believed to be the MMR vaccine, but actually it was something completely different and it killed those two children. So that put parents off getting their children vaccinated. So you had this terrible situation where a lot of parents, you know, they weren't just losing their children, but they're feeling guilty about it as well. And it was just horrific and also there was this thing about traditional medicine, and I get it, like it's important, but not exclusive to the point where you don't get seek medical help for your child. And so quite a few children who were dying were not getting antibiotics, not getting treated, they were just being had this traditional medicine. And the numbers of Family that we'd go to and film and and interview them, and they had these really sick children and you couldn't tell like you'd say to them, you know need you should probably try and get your child to but no 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 natural medicine you know traditional medicine and and it just broke my heart, you know. Um, the guilt from as a reporter as well. So one time we went up to this village and it was during the lockdown, and we interviewed a family and um, one of the children was sick and it was actually a good news story because she'd got help for her first child and he'd survived and then there was this other child who was sick but she said I don't think it's measles and, like, mm. and then we went next door and they were called us help you've got to help us and so we started filming doing interviews. And I looked at my camera and I said, I think these kids are really sick. And she says, we need help. So we stopped what we were doing. We got in our car and we went and um, tracked down a medical team that we knew was traveling around. Said, you've got to come and help these children. We think they're in a bad way. And so we took them up to this house. And sure enough, and, and there was no, they had no car. There's no buses operating. There's no cell phone service. So they couldn't call an ambulance. So one of the people on the medical team raced out to get cell phone coverage to call an ambulance. These children were literally dying. And so an ambulance arrived. And we were filming as it, as it happened. And got, they co- got put in the ambulance, taken away. And they survived. And I was thrilled, right? But what was really awful is that when I came back to New Zealand... I found out that the people next door, they'd lost that little child who, yeah, and I felt guilty because I hadn't, I'd completely gone from my head, I did not alert the medical team to the situation next door. Uh, My cameraman said to me, oh, actually, I mentioned there was someone sick next door, but they, you know, they were focused on these. So that made me feel a little bit better. But that child died, you know, and I went through this agony of could I have saved that? Could that child be alive today if I had said something? And that took that really, that was probably the toughest thing I've ever had to deal with in my career.
0: How did you move through that?
1: Quite badly, actually. And um, I should have done counselling, I think. Um, I, yeah, I just tried to, and I'm still struggling with it, I think. So even though it doesn't affect me in my daily life, but whenever I think about it, like now, I'm going, oh, you know. Um, I think you come to a realisation that what is past is past. You can't change that. And maybe, it, you know, who knows what, it didn't make a difference when the cameraman mentioned it to the team. Mm. But those details aside, I think it's the fact that you've just got to look forward and you've got to try and live your best life all the time and check yourself all the time, Um And so I try not to dwell on that too much. But every time I hear, you know, we went to some funerals of the children and it was just the grief and it was overwhelming. But there were such important stories to be told because, well, one, it got a lot of help from New Zealand. So a lot of aid came in, doctors came in, help came in for the people it got the kids uh, vaccinated it there's it, a lot of good that came out in the end but you know for those families uh, you know they live they live that's forever they live with that forever mm. so yeah i i know we did a good job i do know that but yeah there's always you always wonder if you could have done something different or done something better
0: Mm. So that tension of journalism eh? Where, where you're there to tell the story and in a sense advocate and so then there's always that question of how far do you get involved in, in the problem and so what, you, what you're left with is probably something that every journalist is, is facing it at some point, you've just got to carry it. In my faith tradition, we have this period called Lent, and on Ash Wednesday, there's that famous uh, cross that gets marked with ash on people's foreheads. And you hear that line, remember, i mortal, that you are dust, and to dust you will return. I find it a good reminder for myself, as someone who would like to save the world but can't save the whole world, that uh, the world existed long before me. It's going to exist long after. I can't solve everything, but I can do my, do my bit.
1: Yeah, and I'm pretty good at walking away um, yeah. as well, and making sure that it, you know I, I walk, I do the best I can with that, and then walk away. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you can't carry everything with you. You're quite right.
0: Yeah. To double back a little, you talked about the, and I'm wondering the why of it. Why they went from sending nurses out into each village, which just sounds like a no-brainer, good practice to me, versus the centralising. What caused that shift?
1: I, I probably think power, um, as I understand it. Um, yeah, I think it was a decision made by people up high that it should be centralized. Um yeah, but when I was speaking with one of the ministers about it, and on you know interviewing him, and he he was quite angry about that this had happened, and he promised that there would be changes. And I I think it's a different government now, different people. Are, there's a good, very good director general of health, very good um, Aleke Karoma, who was a doctor here, fantastic man, and he I know will be making big differences in Samoa, and. Um, In fact they've just had three kids who were admitted to hospital recently with suspected measles and I was thrilled to find out um, just in the last day that they've all tested negative for measles um, because they've got to get those vaccination rates up again because they've slipped. Yeah, it's, it's it's a tough road that one as well.
0: Mm. It's worth pointing out here for anybody who might listen to this, that this is the power of vaccines. Because you've got those people who would uh, think that things like measles parties, chickenpox parties are a good idea because then their children are going to be immune. But if we look over to Samoa and that outbreak, it's very real families affected, very real children dying. Nobody wants to lose their child.
1: That's right. And I think to your socioeconomic situation, also affects health, right? So there's a lot of families who are living, you know, very hard lives in the islands and also here in New Zealand. And so, how they might recover with some other, you know, medical conditions and so, how they might recover from a situation might be quite different from someone else. But yeah, I'm a, I, I, I know that it's such a contentious issue, but I've seen too much not to. Not to want people to vaccinate their children with MMR. Like, uh, you know, I just think it's, I, I don't want to see any more death and I just don't. So, yeah.
0: One of the things I'd really like to highlight, and it, it will seem self-evident, but I think it, it's worth expanding it in our mind is that based on what you've said, there's, there might be the sense based on the fact that you've condensed it, that you fly in, yes, mm. there's some grief, you help a family, yeah. you deal with the death of another one, you go to a couple of funerals. That sounds like it's over fairly quickly. But we're not talking about a story where you flew in one day and you flew out that night after dealing with some horrific things. Mm-hmm. It unfolded.
1: Yeah, and it's also important to highlight, I'm not a parachute journalist. So the great thing about my role is that I build relationships, and I always have. And my mother is from Kiribati, so I have relatives in most countries in the Pacific, because she had eleven brothers and sisters, good Catholic family, and they, you know, they they spread their wings, and <laughs> so they are everywhere. So wherever I go, pretty much got guaranteed Solomon Islands. I've got first cousins. You know, it's everywhere, and it's something I hold dear, and so. Yeah, I just, I've built these relationships that's important to me and so I don't just fly in and out and And I use the information I gather in a whole lot of raft of different stories. Um, I build relationships with the people I interview, um, with the people who I work with. I work with a lot of journalists in the Pacific. I a couple of years ago I designed a broadcasting training course And during COVID, we're the first of its kind in the world. And we we trained, I trained, uh, led a training of um, all the broadcasters around the Pacific. I believe there were 19 different broadcasters and they, they would beam in and we would um, train them and they were working journalists but you know some of them haven't had sort of formal any sort of formal training and incredible at what they do but to to be able to actually set up these networks was incredible so I've built great relationships with them as well and um, that's something that I think is really important.
0: Yeah because all journalism should be relational. Uh, but mm-hmm. in Pacifica journalism, in particular, oh, the development right. of yeah. networks and <laughs> yeah. family yeah. connections, and which is why you building this over a matter of decades rather than just coming yeah. in and overnight, you're a great Pacific journalist. It's been decades in the yeah. making.
1: And also, I think you're delusional. Like if you say to yourself that oh, I know it, you know, people yeah. say to me, "Oh, you know so much," and it's like. Yeah, but so I always think of Fiji, for example, as an onion. And you, I've, I've long stopped predicting anything <laughs> that's going to happen in Fiji long ago because I learned the hard way. Um, it's all about, you know, it could be something past, something happened that 200 years ago that might affect the situation. Yeah. It could be someone's uncle who's in that village who, you know, did something to the cousin. And so, you know, it's so, but in Fijians, no. They know their turf. They know it. And so when I go and I always think of it as an onion, you take one layer off, there's another one. And so I'm really careful how, so I never ever delude myself in thinking that I know it. Yeah, um, you know, I'm, oh, I've been doing this for thirty years. I can do this. That's a road to disaster in the mm. Pacific. I can tell you that much.
0: So then, those people on the ground for you, then those relational connections are everything in They're terms everything. of getting good stories.
1: They're Everything, and also it's just about being a good human. Mm. Like you, I don't like. I have um, in Fiji. I exposed sexual allegations against the Catholic Church. And the archbishop, in the end, the archbishop came out and apologised. But for me, I still look after it. that that person who came forward to me and trusted me with his story. I check in on him. Good. Yeah. And I don't do enough of it, but I do what I can. Um, because I think that sometimes, you know, a lot, we, I'm quite blessed in the life I lead. We've all got our challenges, of course. and But I'm quite blessed with that. So you've got to try and do what you can. And I don't try and change. I don't. My job is not to change the world. My voice is just to give a platform for people's voices and to tell their stories. Well, um, sometimes they don't like it. Mm. Well, that's just tough because I do the best I can. And if they don't like it, it's usually the bad people who don't like it, or a politician. And who you know, politicians. They're there at the. They're there because people voted for them. They're. they're their salary is paid for, we employ them. Yes. And never forget that. When I see these politicians being you know, prime ministers and the are driven around in their motorcade and they think they're so important, and I just think, you are there because you work for me or you work for your people. Mm. And I think that here too in New Zealand. Like whenever I see a politician and, uh, you know, don't you forget, <laughs> we put you here. <laughs> New Zealand's put you here. You better do your job. And, you know, if you don't do your job, that's why I think journalism is important because we hold people to account and we challenge. Um, And I know that can be confronting for, you know, especially if you're so aligned with a party or so, you know, but it's our job to challenge. And if they're worth their salt, they will, yeah, give a good answer and they will or they'll try and change something, so I always think and i'm I'm not politically aligned to anything like i i I treat everyone the same, and they'll all tell you that as well, but yeah, it's it's um I always think, don't you forget you are there because of the people.,
0: mm, very good. Just to swing back a little bit to mm. the measles story, how long were you there for? How long did it take for that story to unfold?
1: So I did a lot of work before I went. Um, and it was building up before I went Um, and I have stringers up there too so uh, we did a stringer with, being. Uh, for oh, the yeah, Stringer. it's contact. like sorry. It's like a person who we hire to who's a cameraman or camera woman and also local journalists. So I've got a lot of local um, journalist friends in Samoa, mm. a heck of a lot who I've known some of them for like 20, 30 years. You know, and um, so we're staying in touch that way as well. And I was doing things here, and then I went to Samoa for a few uh, about a week, I think, the first time. And then and did a whole raft of stories there and then came back, did some more work here on it and then went back again soon after, very soon after. Um, you can't stay forever in a place as well. So, you know, we've got budgets as well. Mm. So there is that element. But as long as you've got your your foundation in place, right, you can do your good job. And uh, so I was really proud of the work that I did during that time. And it was not just me. You know, there's, we have a team and the people that I work with on the ground, there just absolutely, you know, obviously we talk all the time because we're good friends. But yeah, but, yeah it, was a, it was a group effort.
0: Mm, that's awesome. To close out, uh, Barbara, mm. thinking about the future of journalism in Aotearoa New Zealand and around the Pacific, what do you imagine? What does it look like?
1: Well, yeah, that's such a good question. I hope that people will still tell the important stories. And I guess my fears with social media, and I'm a big fan of social media as well, like it, it is good in a lot of ways, but it is also terrible in a lot of ways. And the attacks on people... Uh, and including myself sometimes but that's irrelevant that's the attacks and the the bad people sit behind their computer and they think they're journalists and they're not and I, I guess what I hope um, is that these big issues will keep going and I know that the journalists in the Pacific will keep telling their stories their people's stories because so they're a good bunch man they're a great bunch and I know that's secure I worry about resourcing in New Zealand for, for media, Pacific um, media included, um, and with advertising rates going down very fast, um, I do worry about that that may impact on quality. Um, yeah, I do worry about that. So I just hope that... People are responsible and just keep telling the important stories, telling pe- stories that matter, right, um, and that that will continue. I want to see more diversity in the media, I want to, in mainstream media. And Pacific have got it covered. Like, like you know, New FM, 531, they, they're amazing. And um, the Pacific Media Network is what I'm talking about. They're just incredible. Tangata Pasifika fresh. You know, they're all coconut TV. They're all doing such a fabulous job in the arena but in mainstream media pacific's missing Mm. the voices are missing and that's why i still do what i do because it's important and you know i want to see more pacific islanders in mainstream media reporting on all issues not just Pacific issues but all issues we want to see our faces in screen time you know it's it's important
0: yeah, and it it, better, it would better represent who we are
1: as yeah, a nation right? because absolutely. we are a diverse,
0: colourful nation. Hundred
1: percent, and it's not just Pacific, even though that's my area, right? But we're so lucky to live in this society. We've got so many different. How you know? How lucky are we? What a rich society we live in. So, but those voices have to be represented as well. They need to be able to tell their stories, or get, you know, someone or have their stories told. Um, yeah.
0: It's been a pleasure, Barbara. Thank you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Nga mihi nui, Barbara. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this kōrero. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series, and thanks to you for giving some of your precious time to listen. I appreciate it. Also, a big thanks to Josh Couch, Sam Donkin, and Steph So for producing this podcast. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who would like it. And remember to follow in your favorite app to catch future podcasts. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media. We demonstrate that by offering free, independent, and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. The coffee's on us.